Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, former record company executive, artist, manager, and music business insider, Michael Godin. We hope Thank you very much. A real treat for me to be here too. Thank you, Dan. Well, you're welcome. And, uh, you know, we hope that the people are intrigued by having a look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades on the artist development and the business side. So having you as a guest on Liner Notes is a small departure for us because you're not uh, a music maker in, in the sense, but you're going to give us some insights into the part of the business that provides the platform for the music makers. So we're And help the artists to make their music. Exactly. And it's, it's an important part of the business and part of the Liner notes uh, what we're trying to do here is give people some insights into the inside of the business rather than just the sort of obvious stuff you can get online you know discographies and bios and stuff are, are really available online you can just read them or or listen to podcasts absolutely so, uh, so how are you doing that through this strange year and the shutdowns are you still sane you going crazy no, actually, it's been an interesting year, apart from not having any social life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that part of it. Um, what I started doing a year ago, in fact, was uh, realizing how people were stuck at home uh, and some t- cases locked down and in some cases just you know trying to work from home, etc. Yeah. And that it was a lot of people getting pretty bored and uh, feeling lonesome. And so... I decided to expand my weekly radio show that will be 24 years uh, in May, on the 3rd of May this year. Uh, I decided to expand it into a one-hour daily show, Monday to Friday. And uh, the feedback I've had from listeners in in Canada and the United States uh, and in the UK um, has been amazing. And I have eight stations that simulcast my daily show. And then uh, over 20 stations that air my weekly four-hour show uh, throughout the course of the week. So it it airs over 20-some-odd times uh, around the world. Oh, that's great. Well, good for you. And, and, and that speaks well of you, but also you you have such a wide, you know, I was doing the research for this uh, podcast, you have such a wide range of things you've done. So you've got a lot to offer from a lot of different perspectives, which I'm sure people appreciate. Well, one of the things that, that I thought was interesting, Dan, was coming out of radio as a music director, never mind on air, uh, but coming out of radio as the music director, it gave me a different perspective, I feel, uh, for running an artist and repertoire department. I didn't come from the music background or from a music producer's background or a recording studio engineer. I came from the ears mm-hmm. um, uh, of the street, so to speak. And, and also with a certain uh, direct connection to a good sense of what would have potential to be accepted by the public, irrelevant to its music genre, yeah. uh, and understanding the different levels of success that one would expect from a particular artist. Uh, yeah. But I, I think that was a really interesting perspective for me to get into the record business was not from having been a musician, but from having just been a passionate music fan and a music director. Yeah. And so your crazy journey through the music business has been wide ranging, but it all started as a radio guy in high school. Did, did you have a plan or did you just go? You just Well, you know, the funny thing is, you know, some kids think to themselves, okay, what am I going to do when I'm an adult? Yeah. You know, uh, and, and you know, what is, is it a lawyer? Is it a doctor? Is it going to be a, you know, a frontline worker? Yeah. Um, I never had any doubts what I wanted to do. I wanted to work in radio. Oh, nice. 
right from a, a, a young, young kid. In fact, I had a little tiny, so to speak, radio studio in my bedroom with two little record players and a turntable, uh, two, tittle, two little turntables and a tape recorder. And I even took my mother's sewing machine pedal to wire that to become oh, cool. the microphone on and off switch. <laughs> oh, what a neat story. So, so you did have a life plan. You were, you were passionate about that from early Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. From maybe, uh, probably from eight or 10 years old. Yeah. Very cool. I won a lot of radio station contests too, because I would call in the DJ. <laughs> oh, really? And be the, yeah. uh, be the uh, guest DJ or something? Uh, to that no, no, no. I would just win contests by oh, calling into the DJs at the radio stations. Uh, uh, and, and in fact, uh, a fellow that was a big inspiration for me was a guy named Dave Boxer yeah. at CFCF Radio in Montreal. Okay. And in the last number of years, um, we have actually become very good friends personally. Oh, neat. Uh, he, he lives in Vancouver for the last 30 some odd years now. Yeah. And um, he'd be on the same level as, as, as a Red Robinson in Vancouver, uh, as, um, you know, Dave Mickey in those days. Yeah. Um, and so he was a big inspiration for me. And uh, it's, it's really cool to be a friend today oh, for real. Yeah. Yeah, good. No, that that's really interesting, and and the fact that you were able to get into it and you were passionate about it, and and you ended up being coming a, a musical director. So you were in Montreal, that's where you're from, and you ended up going and getting a job at one of the radio stations there. Yeah, I started. Uh, I was in my third year at Loyola and doing my specialty in, uh, or my major, I should say, in communication arts. Yeah. And I had started working at, at uh, CFCF and CFQR, an AM-FM combination. Nice. At uh, the beginning of the summer, uh, I had applied, and uh, months later I got interviewed and then uh, got called to do a part-time job on weekends just for the summer. And within a few weeks of starting there, they hired me full-time for the summer, yeah, and then I was starting my third year at Loyola, and they asked me to stay on full time. Oh, and I thought, well, gee, you know, I could continue on uh, with the hope of getting a job in radio by the time I graduate from Loyola College, which is Concordia University today. Right. Yeah, and uh, and uh, and I thought, well, no, I'm going to take the advantage of the situation now. So I I left Loyola. Uh, didn't complete my BA uh, in communications, yeah. um, but less than a year later, almost in fact, almost a year to the day when I first got hired to be part-time on weekends, I was hired to get out of the on the production side, so to speak, or the technical side, uh, and uh, became the music director. And it was the number one FM station in the country, in, in, yeah. in Toronto, in Montreal, rather, at the time. Yeah. And, and so it was a it was really fantastic experience, and I think radio really helped me um, really focus on what I really wanted to do and 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 how I could read an audience yeah. as a music director. Well, that must have been affirming for you as well, too. You're going to school to learn how to do something, and you already got the gig, basically. And you're, you're yeah, doing no it, kidding, right? <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, that's what really blew me away. At the she, you know, no, no, maybe I should just say no. I won't have this job right now. Yeah. I'll wait for another. Th- two or three years and see if I can get a job then. <laughs> it was not much of a decision, I can tell you. Yeah, no, it's good. And it sounds like it worked out well for you. And so, so you did the John Lennon, the famous bed-in tour that he did? Uh, yes, that was during my high school radio station. Yeah. Um, I was my last year of high school in 1969. Yeah. And we were very fortunate to be able to get uh, some of the DJs from the local top, one of the t- local top 40 stations come and do little guest spots at our high school station. Nice. Uh, some came to the station and some sent in a tape of yeah. a, and did like a half hour 
a recording in the studio of a, of a radio show for us. Yeah. Uh, and one fellow that came was a British DJ at Fox in Montreal. His name was Roger Scott, and he had been a guest at ours, little high school station. And um, shortly afterwards, John and Yoko came to Montreal to the Queen Elizabeth Hotel. And uh, Roger Scott was quite involved as a, being British and being at the Top 40 station. He was down at the hotel a lot and interviewing them. And, and one night, I, well, I tried to call. Um, I had a whole series of questions that I wrote out. Yeah. And uh, I thought, well, you know, if I can talk to John Lennon, that would be unbelievable. Yeah. I'm going to talk to John Lennon of the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a big deal. And I'm 16, don't yeah. forget. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so... Uh, I tried for a couple of days and was always busy, always busy. And then one evening, the I got through and the phone was answered and it said, uh, hello. I said, uh, hi, John Lennon, please. And he said, well, who's calling? And so I said in my deepest 16-year-old voice, this is Mike Godin from FMHC Radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Roger Scott says, I didn't know it was him at first. He said, from which one? I said, is that you, Roger? And he says, yeah. I said, well, you came to our high school radio station a couple of weeks ago. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, I just wanted to see if I could ask John a couple of quick questions. And so he said, well, he's awfully busy, but hang on just a minute. Let me see. And so like a second or two goes by, and it's like, hello, high school. Oh, oh, wow. Isn't that neat? <laughs> so I, have this thing, I still have the recording today. Oh, very um, cool. Uh, yeah. of my conversation with John Lennon. Oh, very it still cool. blows me away that it yeah. happened. <laughs> well, that no, that's super cool. What a what a cool story. And then uh and then of course you worked for a number of different stations, I guess in in that business there's it's probably like the music business. There's a small sort of circle of people that you get to know everybody and you can move around and do your thing. I was looking for opportunities for myself. Uh, I had been yeah. with the AMFM combination uh as music director and on-air weekends at the AM side, ZFCF. And I really wanted to get into Top 40 Radio. And so I spent a fair amount of time in our production studio when I wasn't uh, on shift and would put together demo tapes so I could uh, try to get a job in Top 40. Yeah. And this situation took place with uh, the Top 40 station, the only English station and the only Top 40 station in Quebec City. So yeah. it was a great uh, great opportunity for me to go and be music director there as well as on air. Oh, nice, uh, yeah. And it worked out great, so I stayed there for a couple of years and uh, came back to Montreal for a short period of time to work at CJFM yeah. um, and um, started, I think, in April or so. And then in September, I left. Um, there were a number of reasons there were big changes in the station, and I was the last person that was basically still there trying to do a format conversion, knowing that with the new, the new regime, once it was done, I was done. Yeah. So uh, I just left. I yeah. said, sorry, no, I'm not going to stay. And then uh, lo and behold, I ended up uh, with the gig at A&M Records. Yeah. So it's funny when we talk about radio and we're talking about you know retro music makers and, and the fact that young people have a different experience now, but some of the young people don't realize how important radio was back then. I mean, how we would sit beside the radio station and listen to songs and try to write the lyrics out and try to record the song on our tape deck when they came on so we could have a copy of it and those kinds of things. It really was a, a much bigger part of people's lives than it is now. It sure was. And it was also really the the key focal point for anybody to be able to hear the music that they loved yeah. and, and, and new music, not just, not just, uh, you know, songs that were playing over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. 
And no, that's and so I like to remind young people of that and how there was a there was a kind of a buzz in the air and and, and the DJ personalities really meant a lot too. I mean, there's still some today, but not not to the extent that it was then. Not to the same extent, no. Yeah. I mean, give you an example of the buzz, if I may. Yeah. Uh, when we had the Reckless album uh, by Brian Adams and the first single was Run to You that was going to be released, talk about a buzz. Yeah. Eight o'clock on Monday morning, Chum Toronto, CFTR uh, Toronto. Chum FM Toronto, we're all playing Run to You at the same time, wow. eight o'clock Monday morning. Yeah. That was a buzz. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> I, I definitely want to ask you about that too. But one one other quick question I had about was about mm. the voiceover work. So you did you did some voiceover work as well, like some some Mattel toy c- commercials and that. I guess that was a natural extension of what you were already doing. Well, it, it kind of came out of the blue. Uh, I haven't done a lot of. Uh, kind of like freelance voiceover work. Uh, when I was at CFCF, I was asked to participate as the announcer in a, in a movie um, that I only ever saw once, and I've never been able to find it again. And I think it was called The Heat Wave Lasted Four Days. Yeah. And uh, supposedly uh, about a murder in a uh, motel in Niagara Falls, and I was the uh, voice on the radio in, oh, the, I got you. in the motel room at the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So they need somebody. That, that was an obvious extension there, for sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But then I was in Vancouver, and uh, I had moved to Vancouver in 1986 to yeah. start my management company. And uh, a friend of mine said, hey, there's a, a what, quote, unquote, a cattle call for voices um, for uh, upcoming commercial. And then why don't you come over and be part of the audition? Oh. And so I said, that'd be great. And so there was all, I mean, who I call the Vancouver Mafia, you know, all the big voices yeah. that you that you hear on good commercials from most of the time in those days. Yeah. And uh, so I went, uh, did the audition. And I never heard anything back until about maybe three months later when the big advertising agency, Ogilvy and Mather, uh, called me from Los Angeles and said, uh, you had uh, participated in an audition. And I said, yeah. And then she said, uh, we've been doing the audition in Los Angeles, um, Vancouver, and Chicago. And um, you're the person that we would like to have do the, the commercial. Oh, wow. So I thought, whoa, cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's nice. That's nice. And you're right. It's a very, it tends to be a very incestuous business, right? You know, that, that certain people get what they get and everybody, if you're an outsider, it's like, you're lucky to, you know, you're knocking on the door, but no one's answering. So I, I've, I've never really been a big high power announcer voiceover, so to yeah. speak guy. Yeah, I know. That's cool. But I was the, uh, the voice of the Skeletor Skull Staff. Oh, neat. <laughs> and the He-Man Power Sword. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, that's fun. That kind of falls in your lap, I guess. It comes along and you go, yeah, sure, I'll do that. I mean, that seems like you're that kind of guy that that just sort of, yeah, sure, I'll try that. I'll, I'll do that. Sure, let's see how that works out. So, it was really cool. It was it was just a fun experience. But, yeah, uh, oh, that's very cool. I, and then I, well, yeah, that was a really fun, fun thing to do is uh, to get those. And in fact, there was, there is something still up on YouTube with that, uh, one of those He-Man Power Sword of the Skeletor Skull Staff commercial. <laughs> yeah, oh, cool. <laughs> so then, so you're in Montreal and then it's, you know, you joined A&M Records. I mean, that seems like kind of a jump shift. I mean, obviously it was, it was business related, but it was a bit of a jump shift because you had been in radio, right? So how did that Well, I was... About? I was really fortunate, Dan, in that the very first gold record that I ever received uh, while I was in radio was for Gino Vanelli and his debut single, nice. uh, People Gotta Move. Yeah, great and I, I broke that as if it were a 45 at the time when it was still just an album cut, and it wow. ended up becoming a hit, a hit 45. Yeah. And 
So I had a, a good rapport with A&M Records. And when I, after I had left CJFM in the fall of 1975, I decided I was going to take a trip to Toronto and just to see uh, some friends in the industry, etc., radio people, record people. And uh, because I had met the president of A&M Canada, Jerry LaCourcier, before, um, coincidentally, when I was in Quebec City at CFOM, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass were the main headliners one year for the Quebec Winter Carnival call. Okay, yeah. And uh, all the A&M Brass were there. He was and the so, guy, right? Wasn't he the guy that owned it? Or Yeah, he was the A of A&M Records, which became, okay. along with yeah. Herb Alpert, became the largest independent record label in the world. Great. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. Started out of the garage with one song. Wow. <laughs> so when I I had that opportunity to meet with Jerry LaCourse here before, and that fall of November, oh, September, October 1975, I was in Toronto and called up Jerry and said, hey, you're in town. Come on over. We'll have a visit. So we had a visit. We went out to lunch, had a nice chat and all that. And he said, so what brings you to Toronto? I said, well, I'm just looking for other opportunities. Uh, you know, I, I left CJFM. I've been very fortunate to be have been a music director at every station that I worked at, uh, apart from any on-air work. But I had been music director, and I thought, you know, but I'm kind of tired of being one music director in one station of many stations and one market of many markets in one country. Yeah, right. And I thought that I would like to be the ultimate music director and uh, work in an A&R department and help to choose the artists and help to choose the songs. Yeah, nice. And that, again, natural extension, but it just mm -hmm. kind of came along and you thought, yeah, sure, let's try that. Well, and Jerry LaCourse here said that uh, it's a good uh, coincidence and great timing because I'm just looking to hire somebody. Nice. So you moved and, to Toronto. What was your feeling about moving to Toronto? Oh, I was really looking forward to it. I felt okay. great about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was very excited. Good. Extremely excited. <laughs> yeah. Well, so then the Brian Adams connection. So, but he was in, based in Vancouver. Did you fly him out to Toronto or how did that connection come about? Oh, well, I had been at a, I started at A&M in November of 75. And I believe I first met Brian in either 77 or 78 in yeah. November. And it was the following September that we signed him. Uh, he was playing with uh, Sweeney Todd at the yeah. time doing as the uh, lead vocalist. Yeah. Wishes were, were horses. If wishes were horses, he, he was on that album, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and Brian was really keen to do the career for Brian Adams and not really so much the, uh, uh, you know, trying to extend the career of Sweeney Todd. Yeah. So he called me up and said, uh, I'd like to, I'm, I'm in Toronto, I'm playing in a group, but I'm not here to ask you to come and see my band. I want to come and see you. Yeah. And so we made arrangements, I think a day or two later, he came to see me. We spent some time together and I said, you know what, Brian, you've got some really good songs, but I don't hear anything as a rear, real career launcher. Yeah. So I said, I'd really like you to stay in touch. And we did stay in touch. And the following March, he, um, met uh, Jim Valance, who became his career-long co-writing yeah, partner. Absolutely. And um, they started writing some songs together and doing some demos in, in Jim's basement stu uh, demo studio. Yeah. And um, Brian would send me cassettes. I still have every single cassette demo that Brian ever oh, sent wow. me. Oh, wow. Cool. And so but the Bruce Allen connection was in there too, though, right? Cause he, no, no. He, Bruce wasn't part of the picture at all. At that, that was point. not, didn't come later. until later? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, we signed Brian. Um, here's a quick story yep. on, 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 on how the politics of the music business goes from time to time. Um, 
There were so many occasions when artists that A&M Canada signed or any other Canadian label signed uh, that they were excited about, felt the potential with, and the growth for the, the artist that constantly were getting passed on by the U.S. counterpart. Uh, the, probably the best example of that could ever be would be the Beatles with Capital. Yeah. They were passed on by the U.S. for releases, and that's wow. why you ended up. They ended up on a small number of independent labels. Yeah. But so, as a consequence, we decided we would sign when the time was right because they had the right songs. Um, we signed Brian Adams through our publishing company, Alma Irving Music. Okay. And they produced the four, the first four songs, and A and M Canada licensed those songs from the publishing side, so that we would be. The publishing company side, even though it was owned by A&M, they could still feel free to shop anywhere. Yeah. Um, and we did these four songs with Brian. He wasn't even old enough to sign the contract. That's his right. Mom, he was a teenager at the time. Yeah, yeah. His mom, Jane, had to co-sign the contract wow. on the very first, first uh, recording contract that Brian signed with us at A&M. Yeah. <laughs> Too funny. And so eventually we did the first album, which was uh, a purple album, yeah, which we referred to as the purple album yeah, with Lonely Nights, uh, Hiding from Love on it. Hiding from Love. Yeah. 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 That was really, love that it. was a good pop record. I love it. I, I love mean, it. It's a great album, but yeah. you know, the interesting thing, you develop an artist, you help their career, you encourage their career and you encourage, encourage them to find their own voice. Yeah. And it was on the very next record you wanted, you got it that Brian teamed up with Bob Clearmountain, who was an, an engineer uh, extraordinaire. And they were in the studio and they recorded the album. And Brian found his voice, in yeah. my opinion. I mean, he yeah. really he wasn't just singing very high on the top, and he was singing from his gut and yeah. uh, developed his signature vocal sound. Yeah, good point. Because he does sound—I don't want to say girlish—but he does sound very, very high and thin, thinner on the first album. Like "Hiding from Love" is really exactly, high, right? exactly. And and you know, Brian found his voice, but, yeah. and I really—that's a common thing. It's a very common expression. But he got his voice. And yeah, he learned how to use it really well. Um, and I used to always say to artists, whether it be at conferences when I was asked to be a panelist, etc., I'd always say there are two kinds of artists. There are the trendsetters who could be too far ahead of the trend, yeah. <laughs> um, but there are also those who are the absolute best at what they do. Yeah. And find your voice because it's your signature voice that is going to create your recognition. Yeah. Even if people don't know the song, they'll recognize you as. Yeah, the good, good point. Because when you hear Brian Adams within the first two seconds, you know exactly. Or if you heard uh, Tina Turner, or or if you heard Rod Stewart, or Elton John, or all the big heritage acts, if you want, all yeah. had their own unique sounding voice. Yeah. Um, and and that's to me is is this is that's the sea the, the real key secret to success. Yeah. So, and then the Bruce Allen connection came in. Were you involved in that? Did that change the relationship at all? Uh, no, no. It really, it certainly, it certainly made the relationship so much better because yeah. Bruce had such an incredible amount of experience uh, as a manager, but also having his artist roster as live concert performers. Yeah. And yeah. that was a really crucial thing um, for Brian. 
Um, Because he, the doors got opened for opening acts for different artists in Canada and the United States and, uh, and really developed his following from a live exposure. Yeah, no, good. Yeah, that's right. Because he had the he had the push and the chutzpah to kind of put him out there and say, "Hey, you know, I need to get my." Well, my before guy Bruce got before Bruce committed to get involved with Brian, I know that Brian would sit out in Bruce's office on uh, Water Street in Gastown in Vancouver, um, and say, "I'm not leaving until I speak to Bruce." <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, funny. Well, there you go. That's because because Bruce Allen did say in an interview one time that Brian would have been successful at anything he did because he was so insistent and so intense about being exactly. Success, you know, so another quick little sidebar on that, if I may, yeah. Dan. Yeah, please. In the yeah. early days of um, Brian's career, it may have been the first album. It may have just been the beginning of the "You Want It, You Got It" album. I can't really recall offhand. It's a while back now. But I had come out to Vancouver. Uh, on my regular business trips and would get together with Brian and go over everything, et cetera, and songs, whatever. And there was one night we had gone out to dinner and then he was living still with his mom and his brother um, in Vancouver in Kitsilano. And we went for a walk along uh, at the beach and sat on the logs at Kitsilano beach. And he said to me, you know, Michael, can, do you think it's ever going to happen for me? And I looked at him and I said, you know what, Brian, you have no idea just how big you're going to be. You're going to be huge. (laughs) I said, you know, Brian Epstein knew how big the Beatles could become. I said, I know how big you can become. (laughs) And of course, he had a huge Cheshire cat grin on his face. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it all came true, true, too. So, so one more quick question about that. So, what happened with the AM Records? Like, they're they're not even in in existence anymore, right? I mean, record companies come and go. But uh, did that sort of run its course? What happened with AM? No, it didn't run its course. It, it, Polydor uh, Records out of Germany um, made this incredible financial offer to Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss to buy AM Records. Okay. And AM Records continued as AM Records under different ownership. Herb and Jerry had a contract to stay on for a period of time. Um, but eventually, uh, they stepped aside, and eventually, um, Polydor was absorbed in terms of a purchase by Universal Music. Okay. And so you had all these multiple labels like Motown, which Universal bought, and Island, and A&M, and okay. Geffen, and on and on and on. Um, so all formerly independent labels that all became owned by one of the big three. And so there is no such thing as an A&M record company anymore or an Island Records anymore. You have the option, depending on the artist, um, of which label you want to have your music released via. It's still the same company. It's just a different, you know, label on it. So it doesn't matter if it's on Universal or if it's on, uh, uh, you know, uh, A&M or if it's on Motown. I mean, if it's a Motown record, more than likely it would be an R&B artist. I got you. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Well, thanks for clearing that up. Cause I, well, I was a bit confused by that. Cause I know record companies, I mean, lots of them go out of business too, right? Some of the smaller ones have, have come and gone. Yeah. Okay. Fortunately in A&M and Island's case, they were the two largest independently owned yeah. record labels in the world. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, good on that note. Let me take a quick break sure. and we'll be right back talking to Michael Godin, right? We'll be right back. Hey, do you want to hear about new episodes before they go live? Then join the Liner Notes VIP community. You'll be able to listen to the weekly podcast before the general public, 
Plus, the episodes have no ads, breaks, or interruptions of any kind. You'll also hear exclusive bonus episodes and be the first to know about upcoming guests. To check out the details and become a member, go to linernotes.ca. Now let's get back to our special guest. All right, we're back. We're talking to Michael Godin. We just went through the history of Brian Adams being signed to A&M Records. And then, so in 1986, you came to Vancouver. And what was that about? You moved here, like you had finished your time with A&M, and then you moved to Vancouver to start your management company? No, I, I didn't finish my time specifically with A&M. Uh, one of the artists that I had signed was Paul Jans, who had done right. so very well uh, on the first album and Juno Award, etc. Uh, and he had no management. Oh. And so I thought about it and talked to Paul about it and uh, uh, discussed it with um, my boss, Jerry Lagorce here, and said, I, I'd, I'd like to take advantage of Paul's success and build on it with you uh, and become his manager. And um, I got... I got full blessings from uh, from A and M, and in fact, Jerry Lacroix still hired me on some freelance projects to oversee in the studio. <laughs> oh, so you still had a foot in both? Oh, I oh yeah, and and oh, when, okay. when we did the follow up album, um, the first album uh, album I did with Paul was was uh, his second one called Electricity, yeah. and then we did another one called Renegade Romantic, and for that album, A and M Canada promised me an unlimited promotional budget to help break them in the States. Nice. Okay. So I still had the full, full, full support of a Records. Yeah. Nice. And so, so you, you were working on contract, but you, you sort of left your position there as, as uh, doing the A&R work. Well, for yeah, I, I left being the vice president of, of A&R and yeah, okay. started my own management and publishing and consulting yeah. company. Yeah. Okay. Well, interesting because uh, yeah, Paul Jams was a, was a great talent. I mean, I, I remember his songs rocket to my heart, right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I fall to pieces and every little tear and stuff. It did really well. But so what happened? Did he not break in the States or you just couldn't, couldn't break him down? He broke in the States on two singles. Uh, one believe in me, which was like a top 20, top 30 hit in uh, the billboard hot 100 adult contemporary chart. Yeah. And uh, every little tear was breaking huge. Yeah. Uh, and again, uh, there's always a, a subterfuge story behind the scenes at the time that, the Renegade Romantic album and Every Little Tear was uh, breaking big across uh, AOR radio in the States. A&M was at the end of their contract with Janet Jackson and wanted to re-sign her to a new deal. Um, and um, I know that Virgin was uh, chomping at the bit to sign her as well. So to try to make it really sweet, everything everything got pulled in terms of priority except for Janet Jackson. Uh. And they ended up with six top 10 singles from that album. Um, but many artists, including Paul Jans and David and David and many other artists uh, at the time, kind of got swept aside. Yeah. And and at that point, it didn't make sense to continue doing another record with A&M. So we did a, a 50-50 partnership deal with Attic Records, um, co-owning the masters with Attic Records for uh, his trust album. Yeah. And was that a Canadian release, or did you release it in the States as well? Uh, that was a Canadian release uh, at that time. Okay. Yeah. And then Paul decided that he wanted to uh, get back to what he was doing when I first signed him, and that was theological studies. Yeah. And so he got his master's degree in, in theology and ended up becoming a professor uh, at 
in London. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I was. I'm very familiar with that because I had. I, I think wasn't Tim McKenzie playing guitar for him at the time? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. and then my friend Randy, who was our sound guy for a while, had done some dates with you guys as well. And I, oh, I Randy, very, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. And then uh, and then I had talked to Paul on the phone one time because he and I had some similar background. But uh, he was a super talented guy with some real upside in the biz. And, and but he almost almost made it. Would you say like he just didn't quite get over the top because of that Janet Jackson thing? I think it was partly the Janet Jackson thing. And um, Paul was more like a Todd Rundgren. He was a studio rat, if you know okay. what I mean. Yeah, yeah. No, he I'm loved fine. to be in the studio. He loved to compose in the studio. He loved to record in the studio. Uh, he wrote really well in the studio. Yeah. And um, touring wasn't the biggest thing that he liked. In yeah. fact, he really didn't care for touring all that much. Yeah. And despite tours with Melissa Etheridge and and and, and, and other bands at the time, um, he just really didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> Bottom line. Yeah. And then I uh, guess the business, because he left the business altogether, right? You, you're right. He did a he did a philosophy degree at SFU, and he and I had that in common. And then mm-hmm. he, did, he did a master of divinity, I think, at Trinity. Correct. Which he and I had that in common as well. And then he went to Cambridge, I think, and did a That's PhD right. in theology and then uh, became a theologian and, and left the music business altogether, right? Completely altogether. And yeah. Paul's now retired and he and his wife, Beth, are uh, living on one of the Gulf Islands. And okay. uh, we're still in touch because I'm still his co-publisher for, for the songs oh, that nice. uh, we worked on together. So oh, we're good. in I was gonna, all the time. I was going to ask you about that. If you stayed in touch with him, I'm, I'm oh, glad, yeah. to, hear, I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah. yeah. And they've been through a hard time. Um, their son, Chris... Um, was one of the um, un- very sad, unfortunate situations with the opioid crisis yes, that I, was I, based on a, um, a medicinal situation that just could not get uh, uh, dealt with when it wasn't required anymore. I was aware of that. My heart broke for it when I heard that because, yeah. uh, you know, I had met him before. He he was in sound too. I think he was a sound He's, man. I oh, absolutely. And a, yeah. and a recording artist himself. Yeah. He had a couple of yeah. releases. And, and, you know, it, it was so sad. Also for me, because I knew all these from young kids. Yeah, yeah, you know, for sure. All four kids I've known since they've been little ones. And yeah. uh, their youngest son, Colin, and my son, David, both yeah. are in the uh, video for Believe in Me. So it's a nice historic piece for both of us, too. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. Well, that, that's a nice story. Thanks for sharing that. And I'm glad to hear that he's doing well. And mm-hmm. I didn't realize he'd moved back to, to BC, but that kind of makes sense because he's, yeah. he's run its course and he did it, he did his time. So You've had enough... To- also, so he decided yeah. just to uh, uh, pack up and move back home to Canada. Yeah, good. No, that's good. Well, thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And did you manage any other acts? You, you were involved in the payolas too, right? Uh, well, I signed the payolas uh, to okay. AM. Um, okay. And uh, many artists over the years, of course. Um, but the payolas I signed on the strength of one independent 45 that they did, China yeah. Boys. I still have okay. that Flophouse Records single. <laughs> oh, wow. Isn't that neat? You know, one thing I've been really having such a great time with, Dan, recently, is I went through the whole artist roster that I was associated with for 11 years at A&M Records. And what I've been doing in the last year, but more really actively in the last several months, is I've been reacquiring copies of the releases of all the artists that I worked with. Nice. And um, so far, I've got... well, it's over 40 artists that I worked with, and I must have a good 30 records at this point already. So I'm really glad to have 
a nice capsule of my life in, in recorded form with uh, the artists I worked with. Well, yeah, that's important because you're, you're, you become a historian in the sense, right? I mean, 1971 was 50 years ago, right? And then you look at I can't all, believe it. Be quiet. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and then you look back and you think, Hey, I was there. I was part of that. I did this, I did that. And it's a, it's a kind of a cool historical. It's a thing, really right? fantastic. I mean, honestly, I'm, this is not a bragging thing. Yeah. I am so fortunate with the career and the life that I've had. Yeah. Um, I Nothing has come like bam, 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 bam. I've always had to work for something and be focused to move toward it and try to do my best to make it happen. Yeah. But uh, I can tell you that uh, I've been really fortunate uh, to have such a career. I mean, it's all hindsight. And as I say, $2.50 gets me on the bus with a good story. <laughs> but uh, I was the youngest, most successful record exec in the history of the business back then. Yeah, cool. It's weird when I think yeah. back to it in those in that context, you know, from all these years later. Well, it speaks well of you because, right, you go down there, you put your face in there and say, hey, I'm here. Is there something I could do? And then they go, yeah. And then you get affirmed and then you do it. And then you look back and go, gee, kind of a bold move for a young guy, but it worked out all right. We got time for a payola story? <laughs> sure. Yeah, please. When I signed the payolas, as I said, based on that initial single, China Boys, it came to me uh, from our publicity department, James Monaco, who had received a cassette from Tom Harrison when he was the music critic at the Vancouver yeah, Sun. For many years, yeah. For many years. And uh, he sent Jim Monaco a cassette that he put together of independent records uh, from Vancouver, and he called it Vancouver a go-go. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and there was pointed sticks. There was, I think, Doug and the Slugs. There was the Payolas. There was uh, Barney Bentall. No, before Barney Bentall, it was, it was Brandon Wolf. Brandon actually. Wolf, that's right. Yeah. And uh, so I heard this cassette just because James gave me the cassette and said, you should listen to this stuff. And so that's when I heard the Payolas and I heard uh, Brandon Wolf. And they're the ones that stood out the most to yeah. me uh, so we did i came up with a an interesting concept for releases we called it the debut series and it was a, a series of i did five i think in the series five eps with a with an artist or a group that gave me i recorded five songs with them so it was kind of like not the commitment of having to do a whole album but just a few more dollars than making it as if they were just demos. They were properly recorded masters. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so we ended up, do, and they were priced at $3.98. I do remember that. So it was four songs, was it? It was five songs. Five songs. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it was intended to give a taste of what the the artist is, and to be able to get a good gauge as to the response levels from nice. from the, from the press and from radio, um, and uh, it really was a really great chance for us to try something out. So the payolas we got not a lot of airplay, but certainly a lot of great critical press on on that EP. So we mm -hmm. did a, a full album. Um, the first one was called "In a Place Like This." And we recorded that at uh, Le Studio, for the most part, in Morin Heights, north of Montreal. Mm -hmm. uh, the album, Paul was really nervous because it was his first full album. Uh, the album went way over budget. Mm -hmm. and it didn't get a lot of sales, didn't get a lot of airplay. All, all that happened was I got a lot of pressure to drop the group. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and, that's the way it goes, right? You spend a splash, splash the money around and then you got to get exactly. it back. <laughs> but at one point, managed to get um, Mick Ronson. That's it. Sorry, Mick Ronson. Oh. 
um, the incredible guitar player and really great with background vocals. Yeah. He got involved with the group and we did four songs together uh, as demos, but studio quality demos. Yeah. And, and I remember telling, talking to my boss and saying, look, I just, I've got this situation with Mick Ronson and the, uh, together with the payloads. I want to do four songs and if there's nothing there, we'll drop them. And he said, yeah. okay, you're, you're, you're on the money for it. I said, okay, great. <laughs> and uh, I got the tape, the cassette sent to me um, after they had recorded. And I, I used to listen pretty loudly in my office. I always kept, I kept my office closed, my office door closed when I was yeah. uh, listening to uh, recordings of my artists. And so I'm playing it back and the first song is called Romance. And then the next song is Eyes of a Stranger. Yeah. I nearly, well, I won't say what I nearly did, but I was really <laughs> pleased. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah you, you, that was the money tune, I guess, right? That you was the money it. tune. Yeah. And by the time that the song ended, I was getting other staff banging on my door saying, who are these people? You yeah. got to sign them now. <laughs> and I said, done. They yeah. said, you got them already? I said, yep, had them for some time. It's the payolas. Well, the okay. jobs were dropping left, right, and center. Yeah. Uh, and... I must say it was the best vindication I've ever had in my life because they ended up with uh, so many awards for that album, yeah. song of the year, engineer of the year, uh, album of nice. the year, best new group, all that kind of stuff. Oh, good. Was. It was just perfect payback. And in fact, my counterpart at A&M Records um, at, was uh, at Capitol Records and uh, Dean uh, would, Dean called me up one day and left a message for me and I called back and spoke to his secretary and I said, uh, hi, Dean uh, called me and I'm Dean Cameron, that is from, from Capitol Records. Yeah. And I said, uh, he, I'm just returning his call. And so she said, uh, well, he's kind of busy at the moment, Michael, he's listening to some music and I'm hearing blasting music in the background. I said, yeah, tell him it's, I said, yeah, it's side one cut one of my payola's new album. I said, <laughs> tell him it's Michael gone the phone. <laughs> <laughs> And he picks up the voice and says, I can't believe this is the best record I've ever heard this year. <laughs> That's funny. Well, it was good for you because the pressure was on, obviously, after spending the money and stuff. So so what happened to the pale was that they later became Rock and Hide, right? Like they, they yeah, reformed. we did um, two more albums after the In a Place Like This. Sorry, uh, three more albums after In a Place Like This. Of okay. course, we, the one with Eyes of a Stranger on it, and then two more. Uh, the last one was produced by David Foster yeah. and um, Paul and Bob, but Paul particularly wasn't really all that keen on the end result, uh, on yeah. where the, the softer direction that David Foster is so well known for and incredibly yeah. talented to bring out. Um, but it wasn't um, really what what they wanted. Okay. So... Um, there are some fantastic songs in that record, and we got some really great sales and really wonderful airplay too. Yeah. Um, but they decided they didn't want to do it anymore. And, and again, the states was just so against the name of the group. Interesting. Because of um, paying to get songs played on the radio, known yeah, as yeah. Paola, um, and yeah. so they were just afraid of having a group with the name, um, and no. it didn't help them. I mean, Eyes of a Stranger was a big record in the United States on FM stations, FM rock stations. Yeah. But I'd say 99 out of 100 DJs would say that's um, Eyes of a Stranger on K-Rock. 
they yeah. never say the name of the group. Oh, interesting. Well, I wondered if there was a contractual dispute or, or you know, when you talk about producers too, because Bob Rock became a, a good producer in his own right, right? I mean, he was well known for the, the records that he produced. So I wonder if there was a clash. I wondered if there was a clash in the studio, perhaps over the production. And if you have an executive producer, someone like a David Foster, who's making the final decisions on things. Uh, but that's what he would probably. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'd have to sit down with Bob in, in, in you know, all these years later and, and ask him what his thoughts were, whether he felt uh, not intimidated, but if he felt uh, like overwhelmed and overrun by by David Foster. Uh, I, yeah, I guess it just depends on the position in the studio. If you're the executive producer, then you make you make the final call, right? Yeah. Say, the guitar parts stay in or it's going and it's my, yeah. my choice. <laughs> So they ended up, we ended up parting ways and yeah. they, they guess who signed them? Dean Cameron at, a, at Capitol Records signed oh, them. He signed uh, Rock and Hide? He signed Rock and Hide. He okay. just really wanted to work with them. <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> and yeah. they had Dirty Water, which was a big hit, but then they just kind of split up and Bob was getting more and more uh, opportunities to uh, engineer and mix and, and, and then produce albums yeah, yeah, on so his own. Yeah. And to the point where he's now one of the top five and has been one of the top five producers in the world for years. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of, I think that's what happens is you get in the studio and you really enjoy it. And so the band, I don't want to say becomes secondary, but you've got other avenues that you're exploring that are going to be lucrative and they're going to pay off and they're interesting to you. Right. So you just yeah. follow that. You know? Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so just to switch gears a little bit, you in the early '90s, we have a connection because I came and saw you in the early '90s. I think you had a, uh, an office down in Gastown. Yes, because you had started a consulting business. That's and right. I was, and I was a young guy, and I thought, well, this is the perfect opportunity for me to go and talk to a music business insider and just, you know, bring some of my songs. And I don't know, you probably don't remember because you probably had lots of guys do it. But I, I came down. We met. We, I, I paid two for two. I think two hours of your time. I played you some songs. We talked about the business. Really, really appreciated the opportunity. And then I really appreciated the things that you had to say because you gave me some real good insights. You gave me some really good advice. You were very uh, gracious to me. And uh, I just have the opportunity to thank you for that it means a lot to me. It was around 1993, maybe 92, you know, a young guy trying to find my way in the biz. And, and well, you helped me. In. Yeah. That's great. I'm really glad that I, I was able to help you, Dan, because well, you were, yeah. uh, that was my intent and uh, was to try to provide some encouragement and some insight as to how to move forward in the career. Yeah. No, and it really paid off because I quoted you many times because of the things that you told me. But, you know, things, things, the insights that you gave me, like, for example, it's not good enough to just write a good song. You know, like you have good songs. You told me you actually listen to my songs and said, you know, you're good, but there's lots of good. We yeah. have to figure out how we take that good and make it great or how we take that good and force it through to the great or to the wider exposure and just really common sense kind of stuff. But talking about the process rather than just, you know, the musicians come in, I wrote this great song. You're going, yeah, okay, great. So what? You know, lots of people, I can have a hundred people through my office today with pretty good songs. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so I thought that was pretty revealing and I appreciated you saying it. Well, it thank you for saying that yeah. today. I appreciate yeah. that too. <laughs> Give you another really good example of that. Um, there was a songwriter named Stan Meisner um, who um, was signed to our music publishing division. Uh, again, produced a, a full album because he had his own studio. And A&M Canada released that album. And the second album he brought to me sometime later, I mean, I don't know, a year, probably a year later or so, and said, I finished recording the new album. And so I said, okay, let's get together and we'll listen. So he comes over to my office and uh, we listened to the whole album. And I said, you know, Stan, 
these are good songs, but there's not a song that's going to get you to the next level of your career. Yeah. And he, he grumbled and he wasn't pleased. Yeah. And then he came back and wrote a song that ended up becoming a hit for Eddie Money. And he thanked me then. And a number of years later, I saw him at a uh, SoCan annual general meeting and because he yeah. was on the board of directors and he came over to me and says michael i said hey stan how are you doing he said just great thank you michael he, he said you know again i've got to thank you because if you wouldn't have put that fire under me yeah. and just gone ahead and released that record i would never have ended up having a, a really good songwriting career and nor would i have ever had the cover of uh, by eddie money nor yeah. would he have had a hit record with one chance and so he said i got to thank you again because you really challenged my creativity and that's yeah. really what it was about well that's and that's what i appreciate i want to know the reality of the business i don't want pablum you know i don't need yeah. a pat on the head i want to know yeah. what the bottom line is right and so i i think i even asked you if you wanted to manage me and you said you know you explained very nicely you have to have something to manage and you said like certain acts you know you have to get to a certain level where there's actually something to manage like right. a, a bunch of gigs some money coming in some revenue streams you know that kind of but it was again really realistic and real good so again i thank you for that well that's cool thank you yeah and then so you branched out a little bit did you represent other people did you have any other artists after Paul yes, I had other artists i, I worked with a, a songwriter from uh, north shore from north vancouver l rogers yeah um also signed a, a worked with a band called young gun that yes. um, yeah. uh, ended up becoming the the highest paid unsigned act in western <laughs> canada i remember brian house and i of course i know brian and then yeah. They became and and House has become one of the top producers again. Oh, good. Good for him. And he's well, living in Los Angeles, producing albums. And the other day, I I don't even know, recall the artist, but he said, a gold record in this time of COVID. Fantastic. Thank yeah. you. I don't think he posted a picture of that too. Yeah. So yeah. It's a small world, isn't it, Dan? Yeah. Well, the music, you know, I've been fortunate enough to make a living in the music business for four decades. So I'm real thankful and I'm, I'm a lifer, you know, I figured out how to make a living around Vancouver and, and do my thing. So I'm still, I'm still doing well. So I'm happy and thankful. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, Dan, because I, I think it's a really important thing for people to understand. There's only at any given time, one number one song. Not everybody can have a number one song. Not everybody can have a hit record, but people can have a career of being a musician and a performer with or without hit records. Yeah. And success to me is not having the hit record. Success is, is being able to do what you really love doing. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I do it because I love it. And, and really, you know, from not having the, the success, you know, I've had a few songs published and I had a song on a TV show and that sort of thing. It's some, some minor stuff, but to be able to consistently make a living for that period of time and have done better than some recording acts have, because sometimes there's a spike, they, 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 they ride the wave for a little while. And then a few years later, it's all over. And you got one song that did okay. And that's pretty much it. You got to either get a day job or go find exactly. another way. Exactly. Yeah, so I'm thankful for that, and and uh, and I think that's another part of it that you're well aware of. There's a lot of people that aren't necessarily household names, but they've written songs that you've heard many times, and they make real good money doing that, right? Yes, yes. Two biggest streams of making income is as a songwriter and as a yeah. performer, because you have to have a lot of hit records sold to recoup the investment that the record 
company has put behind yeah. that artist. And um, they only can recoup from the sales of records unless you sign one of these stupid deals recently that it's a universal deal. That well, they, the 360 deal. The 360 right? deal, which is <laughs> yeah. the most stupid invention I've ever heard. <laughs> Anywhere in the universe. Oh. <laughs> I'm a song and you owe me 20 bucks. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's funny. Well, it's funny because I'm reading Pete Townsend's book and he said one of the tensions that they had in The Who was that he was the songwriter. He was making a pile of money. They wanted to tour because they needed to tour to make money. To make money, of course. He said he was, he was getting checks. He didn't care. He didn't care exactly, and, and he he liked to play. But I mean, th there was more pressure on the other guys because that's how they made money. Was the only way they made money that merchandising. Yeah. But you only make yeah. merchandising from the road. <laughs> exactly. No, that that's totally right. So so well, good. Well, you were involved with some other acts and stuff, and obviously gave some people direction, and then and then you branched out again too, right? You uh, yeah, I, you, I I moved away from artist management and then became the general manager for uh, a national charity uh, for the entertainment, music, and communications industry, NABS, the National Advertising Benevolent Society. I managed Western Canada from Manitoba to BC for Very almost nice. 13 years. Yeah. And, and that had a benevolent side to it too. Feel like well, you're making a difference in the world? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I was the intake for people making inquiries from, from Manitoba West. Um, but I also undertook um, fundraising events and organize yeah. them uh, to generate the funds to help support the people from the industry uh, who fell in hard times through illness or job loss or imagine I, 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 if I was still with NABS today I, I can't imagine how busy they would be uh, yeah. because of COVID yeah I just can't imagine how busy huh. they would be so and, and you raised a lot of money for uh, so how would someone apply for that like what what groups did you raise money for uh, well it was not for any individuals mm -hmm. it would be from any I would fundraise from companies, whether they were newspapers, magazines, radio stations, television stations, um, outdoor advertising, any individual who made an income as a result of the advertising process. Okay. And if they fell on hard times, uh, they would be able to apply uh, for assistance. Sometimes, oh, it would nice. be, sometimes it would be financial assistance. Sometimes it would be uh, counseling services. Um, yeah. And this was not a loan. This was assistance. This was help. And thus, the benevolent society. Yeah. Well, very nice. And well, that's, that's cool. Yeah. And it, that really brought me a lot of satisfaction, I must say. Uh, well, yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you, you can always list off your list of accomplishments, but you want to feel like you made a difference in the world, right? That you mm -hmm. did something that helped others and, and, and that. So... Yeah, and then I did some marketing jobs, and then uh, uh, not jobs, but I, I took on a marketing and rebranding of uh, of a actually of a funeral home that um, I had the assistance of um, a, a good great contact of mine, Arlene Dickinson, who you may know the name of yeah. from uh, the Dragon. The Dragon. Dragon. And so I got Dar uh, Arlene and, and her company uh, involved in a complete rebranding of the of the company and website and all that kind of stuff. And uh, nice. And then I ended up working uh, in, in television sales for three years and then retired. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then, and then, so you were, it says here that you were the chairman of the board of uh, Karis as well, the BC chapter. Yes. When I first moved out, they, they wanted me to be uh, participating uh, as part of the board. And then within six months, they, uh, there was an annual meeting of the, of the board and they voted me to be the chairman uh, of the BC chapter. 
I had yeah. been a, uh, a national director of Caris for seven years from uh, 1987 to uh, 93. Okay. And, and for just for our listeners, that's the Canadian Academy of Recording Arts, Arts and, and Sciences. Sciences. Yeah. Okay. And the people that put on the Juno Awards. Yeah. And so I was highly involved in that as a, as a director on a national basis and then as the, the chairman of the chapter in uh, British Columbia. Yes. And, then, and we, we started the West Coast Music Awards and uh, um, we also uh, were fortunate enough to get uh, a really high percentage of national members um, becoming members of Caris um, nice. based in BC. And yeah. one after, after one afternoon, 20% of the national uh, membership numbers. <laughs> well, oh, nice. So that must've been a satisfying experience. Oh, too, that was right? exciting as could be. Yeah. Um, cool. And, and my, my good friend from the rock and roll hall of fame and, and just about every hall of fame you can imagine, Red Robinson, uh, the legendary broadcaster, he and I yeah. put this whole thing together, this whole promotion cool. together of uh, getting uh, a whole event organized where people from the whole business industry would, would would attend and before the end of the day there was a large number of people that signed <laughs> up to be members <laughs> oh that's that's super cool okay well good on that note let me take a quick break and we'll be right back talking to michael godan liner notes has a vip community and we'd love to have you as a member listen to the weekly episodes before the rest of the world enjoy bonus podcasts and be the first to know about upcoming guests oh yeah the episodes also have no ads breaks, or interruptions of any kind. Check out the details and become a member at linernotes.ca. That's linernotes.ca. Now let's get back to our special guest. So uh, so tell me about your current gig here at Treasure Island Oldies. It's kind of funny. It seems like it came full circle for you right after. Well, in a way, you know, Dan, it did come full circle. Um, I had been out of radio for a significant number of years. I mean, I, I got out of radio in 1975 to get into the record business. And um, when I was talking to some friends of mine who were in, involved in the internet uh, and also uh, from radio and the marriage between the two, yeah. uh, I ended up having this concept of, gee, it'd be fun to do a radio show again. And um, my idea for Treasure Island Oldies was it's a place, it's a, it's a destination, it's your oasis to hear the songs you remember, whether they were top five or top 75. Yeah. Because people have a really good memory. They don't only remember, you know, Old Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison. Yeah. He had a huge catalog of big hits. Yeah. And so it, Treasure Island Oldies, the home of lost treasures, started in May of 1997. And, uh, this um, May will be 24 years. So you must have been one of the first ones, one of the first ones in. Well, my show has become one of the longest running online radio shows in the world, which I'm very proud of. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I have over 20 stations that carry my show in in Canada and England and Sweden and New Zealand and the United States. Yeah. All, all over the world. And that in itself is also really rewarding and really cool, especially when I hear from listeners from all over the world say, oh, I heard you play this song the other day. Can you can you play this? And uh, yeah. it's just so nice. Yeah, no, that's that's super cool. That's a nice story too, you know, that uh, that you can have such a wide reach too. Because usually, you know, you think when people retire, they kind of become reclusive or you, you know, you hit the rocking chair and kind of... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm rocking, but not in the... Well, I'm rocking in the chair, but that's not a rocking chair. You're not allowed to do that. You're not old enough to... To do that yet. 
<laughs> so if, if just a couple more minutes, if you're okay, if, if you're okay, you got a bit sure. more time. I just had a couple quick sort of questions about the, the music business in general sure. that I usually ask the musicians, but I wanted to get your thoughts from a music insider. So breaking in the U.S., you know, all the Canadian artists, they, that's their big deal. They want to break in the U.S., right? And there's been lots of acts that never did break in the U.S., and they have a hard time slogging back and forth across I remember talking to one guitar player in a band. I won't mention the band, but he said they they went back and forth across Canada so many times and it became just the starvation tour and stuff. And they wanted to break in the States and they weren't able to do that. So have you had any action down there over the years? And what does it take? Is it a different world down there from a business perspective? Um, I think that to have a hit record really needs in order to boost it, if you want, yeah. um, really needs that live performance. Relevant to what's been happening this past year with COVID, yeah, but yeah, live performing is, is is really the uh, lifeblood for recording artists, yeah. and that exposure that it brings um, is crucial. It's really hard for a local band with a local manager who doesn't have a lot of connections and and decades of experience to be able to uh, affect a tour for their artist or their group. Yeah. Uh, it's, I was fortunate, for example, um, when I left A&M, I contacted every major um, booking agency in Los Angeles and got to speak with them all and got appointments with them all. I right. had you know, a couple of agencies actually uh, vying to represent Paul Jans. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, but I look back again to the situation and the example of Brian Adams and, and, and Bruce Allen, where Bruce had such an incredible amount of experience with um, BTO and then later, and then with Loverboy. And, yeah. But with all, with live performing. Yeah. And so he knew all the concert promoters. He knew all the U.S. booking agents. He knew all the other managers in the business. Yeah. So he could call them directly and say, hey, listen, when you guys are going out next next March, I need an opening slot for uh, seven cities. Yeah. And he could get it. And, and he could get it. So, And that is the power of having a great manager. So what, look at uh, what Network Records did, for example, right? Because they had Sarah McLaughlin and the Bare Naked Ladies. I can't remember the, their whole roster, but they he did a thing in LA. And I, I, I don't know if you ever watched the Jean Gomeshi series about 90s bands, but it was pretty telling. And he said they got them in LA and then they had a 300 mile radius and they would just ride them like rented mules. They're playing all the time, like if you want to break that market. And I'm not sure how yeah. much they did break in that market, maybe a song or two. Um, they weren't doing stadium tours across the U.S., let's put it that way. No, no. Well, again, you have to remember what is the ability of a particular artist's musical genre. Yeah. Is it stadium potential or is it adult contemporary or is it new age? I mean, you're, you're going to have certain levels of ability of exposure depending on what your musical style is. Yeah, fair enough. And and they were playing some smaller venues, but but I think that speaks yeah. to your point of, you know, you got to go down there, you got to work it. You, know, you, you got to work it exactly. Yeah. Uh and 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 that's the only way uh to make an in, to make a dent and to yeah. make an impression. So, kind of an open-ended question, but how how has the music business changed over the last 50 years, like from 1970 to where we sit today? What just what what strikes you as the major differences? Well, I think one of the biggest things is the difference in how artists are making their income. Okay. Um, and I think that um, airplay 
whether air, I, I consider AirPlay, Spotify, the Apple Store, as well as radio stations, but just the exposure, the the ability to have your music heard, um, mm. is very important. Um, but and it's not fair enough to say a hit is a hit is a hit because you you need to have that machine behind you mm-hmm. in order to be able to uh, get out there. You need to have a label committed to you. Uh, or you need to have a, a financial person who is committed to funding your your endeavors. Yeah. Um, it does take money, uh, and it's not a case of um, you know just you know thoughtless spending. It's a case of applying it in exactly the directions you need to have, and that is for getting people from A to B, providing them with meals while they're on the road, providing uh, an opportunity for exposure to interview with. Yeah. It, the press and with doing in-store interviews, doing in-store performances. Um, those are all the things that are all ingredients to trying to um, make a career happen. Yeah. But today, um, there's so much music available, it's just so hard to get heard. Well, that's the, that's the rub. I mean, it's a push pull, right? Like it, back, back in 50 years ago, you know, you had, there was gatekeepers, right? You had a certain amount of record companies. And if you didn't get sort of exposure through one of those, it was real tough to get any kind of airplay or any kind of promo that would be significant enough to do anything. And mm-hmm. nowadays, every Tom, Dick and Harry from here to Timbuktu can record an album and put it online and it's completely saturated. It's like a complete shotgun blast of mediocrity for the most part. For the most part, yeah. There are some great gems out there, yeah. some really great artists out there. Like one of my favorite groups currently uh, is a, is a from Los Angeles. They're called Fits in the Tantrums. I just think they're fantastic. Yeah. I've seen them twice live, and um, I have all their records. <laughs> how, do you, how do you cut through the saturation? Like it's so saturated now, right? There's a million bands out there you could listen well, to. Well, you know, that's where, in my opinion, curating is crucial. It's not 17 hits in a row. Yeah. It's having someone present the music to music fans that can then, they're the kind of the filter for the direction of music that fans of that particular musical style like. Okay, yeah, good point, yeah. And so I think that, um, you know, just having random shuffle play on radio stations uh, or, or or on Spotify or, or any of the other uh, outlets, this. Um, it's okay. It's there, yeah. but how do you find anything? Yeah, you want so, to quantify it. Right? I don't want to. I don't want some algorithm to tell me what I like. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I want to be able to trust the person saying, "Hey, you gotta listen to this." And my inbox, my email inbox, just unto itself, is inundated on a daily basis hmm. with dozens and dozens of emails from publicists. Yeah. Trying to create attention for the new single just out now. It's, it's everybody is fighting for their two minutes. Yeah. 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 Just any time airplay or stage time or whatever. Yeah. So, um, well, I just wanted to ask you, I, I usually ask the musicians, but it's, it's important for you to looking back in your career and the course of your career, is there anything that you would change if you were, if you could do it again? Is there any decisions you made or actions that you took that you kind of thought later, eh, I should have maybe done something different or did you pass up an opportunity you should have taken? Honestly, you know, I haven't lived a perfect life, but I have lived a pretty damn good one. And yeah. uh, I have, I don't really have any regrets. I've done in my life in terms of career or even in my own life i i, I feel i've um i'm not the richest guy in the world by any stretch of the imagination 
uh, I haven't generated millions and millions of dollars of revenue for my artists and, mm. and thus enjoy my 20% uh, for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, but you know what? I'm very satisfied at the end of the day. And of all the decisions that I've made when I think about this now, I have never lost a night's sleep over anything. Yeah. Any decision that I've made, I've been comfortable with. Well, good for you. And that's, that's nice to be able to say, I know with a lot of musicians that I talk to, you know, I, I often ask them, well, were you ever taken advantage of or mistreated? And, and, you know, most of them say, well, yeah, you know, in, in some ways, cause as a musician, you're out there doing your thing and, you know, you might get taken advantage of by a promoter or, or the record deals, not good, or especially there's ho- lots of horror stories of record deals in the sixties and seventies, uh, of people who were taken advantage of and mistreated in some way. And, and, and some people, they, they carry it with them, right? They're, they're not happy about it. Well, to a certain extent, I've got to say that even though I worked for A&M Records um, and I ended up going from the A&R coordinator to the vice president of the company, um, I always looked at the A&M Canada roster as if it was my own label being financed by a major. Yeah. And you, when you look at it in that context, you kind of make the decisions like, would you put your own money on this? Well, I, I put my own name on this. So it's as good as money. So yeah. I would, I, I, to me, I always felt that what I wanted to do was work with artists that I could help develop and um, be proud of having signed. Like yeah. a group called Cano, for example, from yeah. Sudbury. Um, they're a, a, a bilingual group. Uh, from a cooperative in, in Sudbury. Oh. And uh, we signed and made, I think, five or six albums with Cano, um, cool. despite the loss of their lead singer at one point from, from unfortunately, from suicide. Yeah. Uh, but the group went on to this day becoming the the most successful Franco-Ontarian group in music history. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I'm familiar with them. I don't, I'm not familiar with their music, but uh, I was certainly heard of the band. So I'm proud of the different types of artists that I signed, whether it was, you know, I, we did a couple of albums with Offenbach out of Montreal. We did uh, some French albums with um, a singer named Anne Anderson and Veronique Belliveau, and also French albums with a, a tremendously talented Peter Pringle, who had just an incredible command of the language. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm pleased with the, the range of artists that I worked with over the years. Yeah, that's good. And, and of course, if there's a more personal element there, I mean, you know, having been a career entertainer myself, you know, I gravitate towards people who they like musicians, they like the business and they care about you as a person, as opposed to just a commodity. And I think a lot of the people that I've spoken to felt like they were a commodity too often and not a person. So they were a, a what rather than a who, and it bothered them. And, and, and I've sort of gravitated away from people that, that, that won't treat me in my humanity. Yeah. Well, I, I'll tell you one thing, you're right on. Totally. You are absolutely right on. You've got to be comfortable working with the people that are you're wanting to surround yourself with. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think that there's one artist that I did not respect, no matter what style of music that they did. Yeah. Well, it's... Uh, yeah. To this day, I'm... Proud as can be to have had the roster of over 40 artists in 11 years. Well, and if you can look back, I mean, when you get older and you look back, and I've often said that to people, you know, 30 years from now, can you go, can you go back to that person and be friends with that person and, and know that you had mutual respect for one another? And that's why when you said that about Paul and stuff, about Paul Jans and stuff, that speaks well of you because that's the case. 
And then so often it's not the case, right? Well, we signed a group called uh, The Rays, Cheryl and Robbie Ray. They were a pop group. Yeah, they had a TV <clears> show. They, yeah. And they had their TV show, um, not, not at the same time, and shortly, yeah. shortly after we had done a couple of albums with them. But we ended up doing some great, great dance records that became huge in the States. Yeah. And to this day, Cheryl and I, Cheryl Ray, uh, are in touch on Facebook. Nice. Unfortunately, Robbie has passed away a number of years ago. Okay. Um, yeah. But um, I told her the other day that as part of my ongoing project, I, I managed to get uh, the Two Hearts as well as Dancing Up a Storm album. And I said, it was so cool to listen to them again. I just... <laughs> I'm so fortunate to have had such a great roster of artists to work yeah. with. Yeah, I know that's great because, uh, you know, on on the downside, one one story that a friend of mine told me that they were signed and they had a record deal in L.A. And then, uh, you know, everyone was friendly and he was walking through the building. And so I, I won't give any more details than that. But anyway, so the point was that they the band got dropped by the record label and they said they went there and they wouldn't even let him in the building. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and it was like... All these people were my friends. They liked me. They, you know, but, but again, so, so I, again, it speaks well of you that you can, uh, you, that you treated the humanity and the people that you dealt with. And I, maybe that's a Canadian thing to do or something. <laughs> well, that's a Michael thing to do. I don't know whether it's yeah. no, good, good for you, buddy. That, that's a, that's a so what's your bucket list? What do you got left to do? Are you going to do the treasure Island oldies and carry on with that? You got anything else in the works? Um, I'm at this point, I'm so pleased and, and getting so much out of doing both my weekly four hour show on Sunday night live. And then nice. again, archived throughout the course of the week, as well as my daily, uh, Monday to Friday live show, um, yeah. that I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. I'm having a great time. Good. In fact, yeah. a former client of mine from when I worked at the, uh, one of the television stations in sales a few years ago, contacted me about a month ago and said, uh, I need you to come out of retirement. I need you to market, do my marketing. <laughs> and um, I thought, you know what? I'm having a really great time. I don't need to go yeah. back to work. I'm able yeah. to get by as things are going. So I was grateful uh, very, very grateful for the offer and did have a meeting, but I decided yeah. to pass. No, that's good. And, and you know, like the saying, right. Contentment is being happy with what you already have. Yeah. And if you can, if you can say that you're content, I, I feel the same way. And if this is as good as it gets, yeah, I'm good. And hopefully at some point I'll be able to go back and visit Maui, a place I love. Oh, good. Good for you. <laughs> but I'm in no rush to do I'm not looking any time to go on any plane anywhere soon. <laughs> yeah, well, well, we'll wait till this all gets dealt with. Hopefully, Absolutely. it'll be Absolutely. soon. So, well, listen, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. I mean, really, really insightful. I, I knew it would be anyways because I had spoken to you before, but uh, you know, you really shared a lot of great stuff, and I'm really, really thankful. To well, have thank the you so much for the invitation, Dan. I really appreciate it as well, um, and it's been great to reminisce and share my thoughts and and my way of looking at things with you too. Good. Well, I hope I asked you a few different questions than you would normally get. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Many thanks to Michael Godin for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his life in the music business. More information is available at treasureislandoldies.com. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. You can also become a member if you'd like notifications and other inside information and perks. We'd love to have you on board. And you can listen to Dusty Discs Radio as well, Tuesdays and Thursdays, to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. Until next time, I'm Dan Hayes.